But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these things that he took Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened that as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered into the cloud. And the voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days of any of the things which they had seen. I don't know about you, but I love mountaintop experiences. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience with the Lord? This is metaphorically speaking, as you know. Maybe the closest mountaintop experience you've had is driving over the Rockies as you're on your way to the West Coast. Not that kind of a experience. If you've ever had one, you long to have another one. And what we mean by that is just simply that you experience the presence of God in your life in such a way that it's unmistakable, that you are impacted by that presence and you're never quite the same afterwards. You're, you're altered by that experience. There are peaks and valleys that you and I experience as we journey through life. And obviously we don't like the valley experiences. We don't like the trials and tribulations that we experience. But it makes the mountaintop experiences that we do experience along the way that much richer and more appreciative of them. One of the things that you'll find as you walk with the Lord is that He shows you things to come. I remember... Um, I think it was the, about the third week in January, and I was reading through, uh, in my devotional time, uh, the first chapter in James. And, and of course, you know, you're, all of us are familiar with that one about trials and tribulations and all. Uh, but this became, it was one of those moments where I felt like the Lord quickened uh, me to, to that trials that, he, you know, as it says in John fourteen twenty nine, it says, I've told you before it comes that when it comes to pass, you may believe. So there's this prophetic work that the Holy Spirit has in our life that he will show us things to come. You know, the, the world would say, well, like a premonition, you know. And that's not what we're talking about. This is the real work of the Holy Spirit that he shows us. He, he sort of lets us know of what's coming ahead of time. And he does it for a couple different reasons, obviously, to prepare us for what's coming or to at least be thinking along those lines, but also uh, to build our faith. 
Now, I felt that impression that I was going to be going through a trial. I didn't think it was going to be pneumonia. <laughs> and then I start seeing what the, and I'll just be totally transparent here, the satanic attack upon our church. You think, well, you're kind of spiritualizing this, you know, this flu thing going around. Well, not really. When you start looking at the people who have contracted the virus, this flu, uh, people that are part of the GAP team, every family of the has been affected, whether it was them personally or someone in their family, and multiple members in some cases. Uh, obviously, Kathy and I, uh, with the pneumonia and all. And then, um, throughout the body here, you know, the enemy is out. He plays for keeps. And why? You can ask why. That's sort of a a question you might ask the Lord, but you're probably not going to get an answer that would satisfy you. We just have to trust. God is in charge. It is in when sometimes before you can get to a mountaintop experience, you have to go through the valley. Again, the word of the Lord came to us uh, a few days ago, uh, last past week, and saying that um, God was going to do something new and different. And I, I didn't receive that, but two or three other people have. So I, again, as Jesus said, I've told you before it comes that when it comes to pass, you might believe. God is in the business, if you will, of strengthening our faith. There's nothing more insulting to God than for you or to me not to take him at his word. Just simply believe him. We don't have to understand how or why or, or answer any of those questions. Just trust our Father in heaven. He's perfect. He's loving. He's kind. He's good. And so this is very important for us to grasp as his children. These mountaintop experiences are good. They're helpful. And I think there's an, a few things to... Uh, the end of Mark 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 here that can be helpful for us uh, in our journey uh, to the Lord. As we look at the context here back in, in Mark here, we see the context and really the, the thrust, if you will, of Mark's gospel is to reveal the identity of Jesus. We've entered into this part of the book where there's only a few, a couple weeks really, left in Jesus' earthly ministry and his life. He's going to be on the cross in the next couple of weeks. And what they are doing is they have left his ministry there on the north shore of the Galilee and they are headed to the north to Mount Hermon, uh, Caesarea Philippi. And as they're making their way there, as is Jesus' manner, he's always teaching, he's always instructing, he's always preparing dis the disciples for what lies ahead. And so we, we've covered this uh, about a month ago now. Um, but one of the first questions that Jesus asked them, because it's all about re revealing himself to his disciples and to uh, that generation, um, who do men say that I am? And so they get these various answers, you know, Elijah, and one of the prophets, or Jeremiah, you know. And, and so 
Jesus made it very personal. Boom. Isn't that the way the Lord is? Well, it's, well, this is what people are saying, but what do you say? And it's so important for us to understand that. It's a very important question to answer. To you, who is Jesus Christ? Those of you who may be listening by way of the internet, have you answered that question? And those of us sitting in the sanctuary and in the back. To you, who is Jesus Christ? Who do you say that Jesus is? And if you can answer in the affirmative that he is Jesus the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is God come in the flesh. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. He is the Creator God. When you can confess those things and identify Jesus, then you're on the right track to experiencing his presence, his power, his goodness in your life. And then, as is Jesus' manner, he knows the needs that are within every heart. There's, there's growth that needs to take place in my heart. There's growth that needs to take place in my life. God is all about spiritual development and spiritual growth in all of our lives. He doesn't want us to remain infantile or carnal in our walk with him. He wants us to be strong and vibrant in our faith. That's the objective. That's what he's after. He wants to have a deep, intimate, personal relationship with each one of us. And so there are often things in our life, there are misunderstandings and misconceptions that we have about God, that we have about God's plan. And so Jesus begins to break upon them on their journey as they're walking up those dusty paths towards Mount Hermon that he is going to be rejected by the establishment. They're going to scourge him. They're going to beat him. And they're going to kill him, but he is going to raise from the dead. And you've got to understand that within the theology and the eschatological times, the last events as the disciples and the Jewish people uh, viewed it, that when Messiah would come, he wasn't going to die on the cross. There's no way that Messiah dies on the cross. He is there to rule and reign and put down the enemies of Israel. Far be it from Messiah that he would die. But Jesus knows their purposes, the purposes of God and the plans of God have been hidden from the disciples. They don't see clearly what God's intentions are with the first coming of Messiah. And so obviously they, since it didn't fit into their theology or their, their last times movement, their end times theology, if you will, they spiritualized what Jesus was talking about. And when it got a little too clearly that Jesus was actually literally talking about dying, Peter took him aside and said, look, this should never happen to you. Now, I have a feeling it wasn't just Peter that had a misconception about how Jesus should finish out his days, right? I think all the disciples were in that same... He turned around, as it says here, and he declared it to all of them, and he rebuked Peter because he's the one who spoke it. But they were probably all thinking it. So let's just not jump on Peter there. It was a general statement. Get behind me, Satan. You 
are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. A rebuke deserved and needed because it was in direct opposition to the plan and purposes of God. And then at the end there of chapter 8, Jesus exhorts the group that had been gathering now as they were walking to the north there. And he lays out the need and for understanding of what it actually takes to follow the Lord. Come after him. Deny self. Take up the cross and follow. It takes humility to be a Christian. It takes humility to realize that you do not have what it takes to please God within yourself. It takes humility to believe that you need forgiveness of sin. It takes humility to confess that your self-righteousness is not sufficient before God. And the only way you can gain life is to surrender your life. It takes humility to no longer count your life dear to yourself and to just freely surrender your life to God's plans and purposes, knowing and trusting that He loves you and He cares for you. That's so important. You know, what are you going to give, as he says there, in exchange for your life? How many people gamble with their souls? Well, you know, I'll wait till I get a, a little older. I want to live for a while, and then when I get older and I start my family, or, you know, when I get near the end of days, then I'll get serious with God. I don't hope the rapture doesn't happen between now and then, but in the meantime, you know, what, would you, what are you going to give in exchange for your life? Would you gamble with your life in that way? No one is guaranteed tomorrow. It's very important. And then, as we pick up the story here, surely, verse 1, I say to you that there are those standing here, who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. This is an interesting verse. You know, it says, uh, is he talking about what he's been delivering? I mean, John announced the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. And Jesus said the same thing as he began his earthly ministry. But how is it that that we're to interpret this? Well, I think the answer to the question is what we read in verses in this gospel, verses two through thirteen. It is the transfiguration, the revealing of the inner identity, the real identity, in a tangible way to the disciples. Now, it is possible here that. Jesus also could have been referring to the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God came upon the church. And we see this progressive development, if you will, of the kingdom of God. So when we think in terms of the kingdom of God, again, it's something that most of us here are familiar with, but for the sake of review and understanding, it's good to remind us that the kingdom of God is, as John said, as he began his ministry, here. And as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is here. 
Well, when we look around our world today and even look through history from the time that Jesus spoke those words, we look and think, there is no way the kingdom of God is here. Well, then does that make John a liar? Does that make Jesus a liar? No, it's understanding of what is involved there. He has brought the kingdom. He has made it available. Jesus said to Nicodemus, if you want to understand the kingdom of God, you must be born again. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. You must be born again to see or to comprehend or to understand the kingdom of God. What Jesus was talking about was a spiritual kingdom of which people could enter into as citizens through faith because of atonement that would be made for them. It was entering the kingdom through the forgiveness of sin. And yet, the kingdom of God, as we now know, and as we study the scriptures, it is here, it is now, and it is something that is developing. And it is something that will be coming in the future in totality. So the kingdom is now, it is growing, and we see its development from the day of Pentecost onward. Another phase, if you will, and a deeper revealing of God's intention and purpose. Now what we refer to since the day of Pentecost, the church age, the age of grace, where God has now opened a door not just to the nation of Israel and to Jewish people, but to the Gentile. And so we can all become one body of believers. No one in the Old Testament saw that work, marvelous work of God, the mystery of the church, which was given to the Apostle Paul to reveal to uh, those who in the first century needed to understand that it wasn't just about the Jewish people. It was also about the Gentiles. And that God wanted to again invite the nations to come back and be part of eternal inheritance through the gospel of Christ. And so we see this ongoing spiritual development, which is so important. Could you imagine if Jesus would have come and, and just simply establish his kingdom physically and he'll kick the Romans out, judge them, wipe, wipe them out as one would wipe a dish, right? But now you've got all these people who are living in sin and bondage to sin because they have fallen natures. What good would it be to try to establish a spiritual kingdom with carnal people? If you're going to establish a spiritual kingdom that love God, then you're going to have to change the heart. And so first things first, it's always the spiritual before the physical. And so this is what we see playing out. But one day, not too far from our day, Jesus will return in a spiritual kingdom to establish a physical kingdom Then he will rule as Messiah over the earth uh, for a thousand years. So this is what we believe is coming and hoping for. And so, as I was saying, there are things that are within the lives of, uh, of each of us, as there were things in the lives of the disciples that needed changing. There were things that needed, uh, misunderstandings that needed to be dealt with. And one of them was about his mission and purpose in his first coming. So Jesus addressed that, and I think that's why he took uh, Peter, James, and John uh, to the mountaintop. Look at verse 2 there. It says, Now 
After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Now, if you remember, as I read the scripture there in Luke, it says eight days. And so some of you skeptics and uh, those of you who really are paying attention, you go, wait, 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 what's the conflict here? Well, um, some, he probably counted the day prior or and the day after. I mean, it's not that hard to calculate uh, in that sense. So there's really not a conflict there. It's just a matter of when you begin to recount the story of which days you want to include. Um, but the thrust of it was uh, the, the six days. But that's not the main point here in this verse. To me, is look at the method of Christ. And I think there's some parallels for you and for me. It says that he took these three men. Do you understand that God has taken you out of the world? He has chosen you out of the world to be his own. Remember back in the previous paragraph uh, there in verse 34 is that Jesus called people, all the people, not just the disciples, but all the people to himself. And that's important for you to understand. God is calling all people into himself, to an intimacy, to a deep personal relationship with him. And in this case, he is something very special. He is a mountaintop experience that he wants to these three men to have. He wants to reveal himself in a way that he's never revealed himself before to these three guys. So he took them. And then it says that he led them. That's what God does. He takes us out of the world and then he leads us. And the journey is a journey to his heart, to his person, to knowing him. But notice it says here, apart by themselves. And this is key. If we're going to be transformed, if we're going to have an experience of a deep, intimate walk with God, is because you and I are taking the time to be apart by ourselves before the Lord. It just isn't something that happens in a casual way. As the writer of Hebrews says, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. It isn't the casual inquirer that is blessed by God. It isn't the casual inquirer that is brought into a deep abiding relationship with the Lord. It's the diligent seeker. It's the one who really wants it. As you look at the scriptures and you follow some men of God who are examples of faith, I mean, think of Abraham and Moses. You know, Abraham was called the friend of God, but as you read through his life, there's this, as he grows in his faith, there's this growing desire just to be with the Lord. And as he is with the Lord, it becomes so much easier to trust the Lord. I mean, for that guy to be willing to give back a son that he longed for all those years to surrender him in death, that and the trust that was exemplified in his willingness to take the knife and slay his only son. I mean, that is what we're talking about, that growth and development. And then be it Moses or be it even Paul, you can see this progression, this maturation that takes place as these men walk with God. I mean, Moses, think of all the miracles in Egypt. I mean, the Red Sea, the manna. 
the quail come. I mean, just this guy lived in a supernatural experience. And yet he didn't get caught up in that. What is in Exodus 33? Show me your glory. I just want to see you. I just want to know you. That's what it's about. It isn't about the miracles. Oh, they're going to happen. Oh, trust me, they're going to happen. They do happen. They are happening. It is about knowing the Lord. This is what Paul's heart was. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection in my life. It is the presence and the power of God within our lives that God brings us to. That's, we want him. We're not satisfied with anything else but him. So important for us to understand that. And so Jesus led them to a high mountain. Now when we think about the high mountain, this is, uh, this is Mount Hermon where this took place. This was the, uh, according to Jewish tradition, an interesting place that, that Jesus would take these fellows for this experience. And uh, according to Jewish legend, um, the base of Mount Hermon was actually the gates to the underworld, the gates of hell. When Jesus is standing there and he's making the proclamation Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. He's standing above that right there at the base and he's proclaiming. Now when we think about the gates of hell, what we're talking about is as it were compared to the city gates. And they, you have to go through the gates to enter into that city in order to enter into hell, you'd have to go through the gates of hell to get there. Now, when we often hear people talking about victory and the power of God and God at work and the gates of hell should not prevail, we look as though the church, you know, uh, is the citadel. No, no, no. The church, we are the offensive attackers. We are attacking the cities of Satan, the strongholds of this world, And the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. We can go in through those gates and take the captives that are inside those gates and bring them to salvation through the gospel message. That's the mission. The gates of hell are not strong enough to stop the church from advancing the cause of Christ. And this is our mission. To preach the world. To reach the unsaved with the gospel message. Now, in the spiritual realm, something was going on. And actually, there are those scholars who believe that this statement by Jesus aroused the demonic world into action. You know, Satan did not and does not. It's sort of like ourselves, actually. We only know the plan of God in part. We, don't, we, we know what's going to happen in the end, because Satan knows his end, right? God is going to win, and God has already won, and he's going to establish his kingdom. But we don't know how it's all going to, how we're going to get there, how the journey is going to, to, to be, as it were. And in this case, he knows that Jesus is establishing the kingdom, and now he's being challenged to get the, the gates of hell will not prevail. Wait, what? hold on here. Remember the demons, when they were cast out on occasion, would say, we know who you are. You are the Holy One of Israel. 
Have you come to torment us before the time? You see their ignorance? What are you doing here, Jesus? You're the God-man. You're in the flesh. Yahweh has become flesh. What are you doing here? You know, it's not about you demons, by the way. It's about establishing God's rule in the hearts of men. Turn with me, if you will. I want to wake you up a little bit. 1 Corinthians 6, or chapter 2, rather. 1 Corinthians chapter... Let's try that again. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This will explain the ignorance of the demonic world. He's not talking about earthly kings here, so keep that in mind as we read. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 10. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For they ha- had they known... They would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. And so... If Satan knew through his provocation of the establishment, which he moved to crucify Jesus there in Jerusalem some week or so from this event, if he knew that that act of crucifying the Lord would bring about his defeat, he never would have done it. But he was blinded by his pride and blinded by his ignorance. And so the only way that you and I can escape blindness, ignorance, as I said earlier, through humility. It is through this moment of time that, let me go back to Mark here, that Jesus chose to reveal himself in a very special way to Peter, James, and John. The word transfigured before them is similar to the word that we're used to, metamorphosis. It's the same uh, base word there from the Greek. It means just simply to change outwardly or visibly. And uh, it's an altercation or alteration, if you will, uh, in form. And so what we know about Jesus is that he is God in the flesh. He, He embodied as much as can be within the human body and nature, which he had that dual nature, the glory and the essence of Yahweh. He never stops being God. He didn't become God. He's always been God and will always be God. He limited himself uh, with the limitations of mankind in, in the incarnation. He was truly deity in human form. And so what we actually see taking place here is the reality of who Jesus is, not was, because he is, is allowed to come forth in what we see there. Notice what it, the description here. His clothes became shining, exceeding white like snow, such as no launder on earth can whiten them. And so the reality of, it's just like he pulled back the flesh, 
the flesh could not contain the inner beauty and glory of his true person. I can't imagine the thoughts that must have been racing through the minds of these three men. I mean, that's what we refer to as a jaw-dropping experience. (laughs) You know, (laughs) pull it up there, boys. I mean, just like, what is going on here? Now, would that have been a mountaintop experience? I'm sure it was. What's interesting is that it might have been fatigue. Um, We don't really know, but these guys were ready to crash. (laughs) And I find that often that in prayer meetings and in times when the Lord is present, sometimes there's a heaviness that comes upon us. We want to doze off. I mean, it just somehow there's there's a connection between us sleeping and God's presence. Uh, We don't really... Uh, fully understand that, but uh, this isn't the only, you know, it, it, it tells us in one of those that it, I think this is Matthew's gospel, uh, chapter 17, where he is going actually up to the mountain to pray. And so maybe they, as they were, you know, it's a little hike up the mountain, it's going to fatigue them a little bit, but, you know, Jesus begins to pray, then that's when this whole thing happens, and they're just sort of nodding out. They wake up, you know, partway through it. And wow, there's Moses and Elijah. It's kind of like, and then Peter's, they're starting to like walk away. Like, and this is, wait, hold on. We just woke up. We want to see more. Hey, Jesus, can we build three tabernacles, you know? I mean, just the natural reaction of Peter's hilarious. But, you know, he's he's just telling it like he feels it because it's what he wants and desires is what we all want and desire. When we have a mountaintop experience, we don't want it to end. Oh, I want more. Maybe that's where that song came from. I want more of Jesus, more and more and more. I want more of Jesus, more of his great love, so rich and full and free, right? We we want more of Jesus. We don't want to lose that presence. It's something we know within our hearts that we were born for. We were born to experience God. We were born to be in his presence forever. Unfortunately, we've been separated through this rebellion and sin that's, and this curse that's been come upon this earth. But one day, when the kingdom comes in its fullness, you and I will be restricted no more. Hallelujah. This was uh, experience, I believe, was uh, a very important one for them to have. No doubt, Jesus knows that when he's hanging on that cross and he's being crucified and then he's buried, that the disciples are going to be just absolutely decimated in their hearts, in their minds. All their eschatology is out the window. Their understanding of God's plan and purpose is just, just within their hearts has been decimated. They are, they are done. They don't get it. They're confused. They're depressed, as we all would be. But I think the Lord allowed this experience to happen to prepare them for what was to come. And again, as I said earlier, so many times God speaks of things that are not as though they were because he knows they're going to be and he speaks them through his spirit, through his word, in your intimate time alone with him to show you things to come so when it happens, your faith is strengthened. You are blessed. You are prepared for what God is doing. Now, this voice came, and it 
really freaked him out. And that voice came as an encouragement not to destroy them, that they were on the right track. They should listen to whatever Jesus says. Well, I can imagine. Okay, whatever you say, Jesus, whatever you say. <laughs> I mean, totally. I mean, these guys were on, they were in the dirt, wide awake, scared to death at just the words that were uttered that came from that cloud that overshadowed them. Whoa. He wanted them to be prepared to endure the trial that was coming. And they would have this event. No doubt is they're in that upper room just hiding out from the Jews after the crucifixion. They had to, Peter, James, and John had to be thinking about, wait, this just does not make any sense. We saw his glory. It's important that when we go through the valley, and we go through the struggles, that we're able to look back and see those mountaintop experiences. You know, that was so precious what God did. That was so awesome what God did. And so you see how it's, it's able, it is through that tension that we're centered and we're brought to complete focus on him. Remember the centrality of Christ. It's always bringing us back to him. Always our focus upon him. And then I also believe, you know, as Jesus told him, don't tell anybody about this experience until after the resurrection, right? I think this um, would serve as a confirmation of their own calling. I mean, they you really think about the experience that the disciples went through. They went through a real crash course, three years of learning ministry under Jesus, and then just having their hearts ripped out, and then getting filled with the Holy Spirit, and then miracles all over the place. You can see a pattern of development. And are we above our master? Are we above those guys who, who, who went through the ringer, if you will? Why do you think we're going through this present trial in our church? Is it you think that God is angry with us? He wants to punish us? Yeah, I want to show those people at Calvary Chapel Greenville, they're not what they think they are, you know. Well, there's other ways he could do that, I suppose, without allowing what we've gone through the last six, eight weeks. God wants to reveal himself, and God is going to reveal himself in marvelous ways in the days to come. Our responsibility, I think, in all this is to just simply humble ourselves under his mighty hand. We know that we are going to have mountaintop experiences. We're going to, as Paul says, we're going to be changed from one glory to another glory to another glory. We're going to experience incredible mountaintop experiences in the Lord. But we're also going to go through some excruciating trials that breaks our heart and almost, as it were, seeming like it's going to destroy us. But God is the perfect potter. He knows just the right amount of pressure to put upon us, to shape us and mold us into the vessels he wants us to be. Our trials are only temporary. And as Paul, as he walked with the Lord and coming to know the Lord, he, he said, these present trials are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. And so this is what is required of us, is to trust God, to have faith. So, you know, it's easy to trust God on the mountaintop experience, isn't it? 
Oh, yeah, look at God, yeah. This is what we should be doing in the trial. This is what Paul learned, right? I glory in trial. I glory in tribulation. You know what happens to the person who's in trial and tribulation? You know what they get? More grace. Paul knew that when he was getting going into a situation and he was going to get beat or persecuted, oh boy, <laughs> I just got healed from the last one, you know. <laughs> he knew that grace, he was going to experience more grace. And in that grace, that special grace that God gives through suffering is the revelation of himself. He reveals who he really is, his love, his nature, his care. And you see, that's, that's the part that transforms us. That's the part that we're drawn to that we want more of. And, we, and so those trials, those tribulations, those less preferable times, they no longer become our focus. I know when you're sick and you're not feeling well, it's hard to not be self-absorbed. You just feel rotten. And you just can't seem to think about anything else about how bad you feel. And it, there is a special grace that can come upon those that are suffering if we will make an effort to make Christ central in our focus. There's a special grace that comes and you see him and you realize, you know what? I can do this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so I just want to encourage you all. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen some of you. I don't know if you're headed to a trial or you're in the trial or you're coming out of the trial. You're somewhere in that work, right? Well, maybe through some fellowship I'll be able to find out. But wherever you're at in that process, there's grace. There's goodness. There's wonderful things coming to your life because that's the kind of God we serve. He wants to share his presence. He wants to share his power, his strength with you. Shall we stand? So, under the circumstances, as we begin to close out here in our worship, this is a time for us to wait upon the Lord. Because wherever you're at in that process, from valley to mountaintop experience, you need grace. And so, if you're in that position where you really are over your head in sorrow and pain and you really need an extra measure of grace, I want you to raise your hand and I'm going to pray for you. And I'll be praying for those of you online. I can't see your hands, but I know that there's probably someone that's no different than the rest of us. And so let's, uh, as we sing, you raise your hand and I'll be praying for you. <laughs>